good morning again. We are about to do something that probably needs a warning label. This could change your life. Um, We start today uh, into Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning will be an overview of all three chapters, and then we're going to dive into it after that. It'll take us a little while to get through that, and I just want to give you a heads up. But What I want us to think about as we begin this morning, and we've already sung about it some, and actually mentioned it Wednesday night in the adult class, is authority. Authority. You know what that word means? Authority. The official definition from the internet, because that's the official definition, right? You just look it up on the internet. The definition on the internet for authority is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. Merriam-Webster defines it as power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior. I have a very simple definition for authority that helps me remember it and helps me to communicate what authority is. So however young you are, however old you are, I want to give you a two-word definition of authority this morning. Right and might. If somebody is in authority, they have the right to tell you what to do and they have the might to discipline or punish you if you don't do what they tell you to do. Right and might. Okay? Young ones, it is imperative that you understand the concept of authority. But not just young ones, everybody. Everybody. All of us live in a world that operates on the principle of authority. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you are under someone's authority. If you go to your favorite restaurant, somebody give me one. Cheddar's. Cheddar's. Don't go there. McDonald's. Okay, let's go to McDonald's. So say you go to McDonald's, okay? Are you under anybody's authority at McDonald's? Yes, you are. You're under the manager's authority, whoever's in charge there. If you don't believe me, go there and hop up on a table and start dancing and see if you, they just let you do that, okay? Somebody's going to come out and going to say, you're not supposed to stand on the table, much less dance on the table. We're going to have to ask you to get down. You're like, I am getting down, right? No, that's not. That one's free, okay? I won't charge you a bit for that. Get off the table, sir, or we're going to call the authorities, right? We are all of us under authority. But the question is, who's authority? The police? The governor? The president? Your boss? Your parents? Yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. But that's not all. The Bible says that there is one who has all authority. All authority, Jesus says in Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that's part of what we sang about this morning. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to take the seal 
and open the scroll. We break the seal and open the scroll. Jesus paid it all. Jesus, only Jesus. And then, the, then that last song, the Lord God Almighty. Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty and all authority belongs to Him. All the right, all the might. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is portrayed clearly as the Christ, the King, King of heaven come down, the King that we clearly see in Matthew's gospel who has all authority. So since that's true, how should we live? If Jesus has all authority, we might be interested in how He says that we should live, right? And in these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see that exactly. We're going to see exactly what Jesus desires of us and demands from us as His followers. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at the background behind this sermon, which I think is the greatest sermon ever preached. And then we're going to see the setting of the sermon and then the overall message of the sermon. And then we're going to spend a few months probably looking at it in depth to get a greater feel for and understanding for it. If I, if I have my breakdown right, we're going to have 20 messages from these three chapters. Okay? I could do much more. Thank you very much. <clears throat> um, we could do much more. But that's, that's where we think we're going to be. <clears throat> this morning what we're going to do in our public reading, we're going to read the very beginning and the very end of it. Okay? We're not going to... It would take about 20 minutes to read it. By the way, it would be a great idea to sit down one day this week, two days this week, six days this week, seven days this week, and read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Take about 20 minutes, I think. Okay, But this morning, if you would stand with us, we're going to see the written Word of God. We're going to hear the spoken Word of God in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. So, we will start with... Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for Your Word, every jot and tittle. And God, we this morning are hopefully 
specifically thankful for these three chapters that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for the life of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the work of Jesus. And we bask in glory in that work this morning. Holy Spirit, would you please, by the power that you alone have, convict us, shape us, conform us to the image of this Jesus whom we worship this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So before we look at these three chapters specifically, let's look back quickly at the four chapters of Matthew that we've already covered to help set the stage and the setting and all that stuff. So Matthew is portraying Jesus as what primarily? The king. The king of the Jews. Okay. What we saw in chapter 1 was that Jesus' genealogy pointed to him being in the line that flowed from Abraham to David and forward. He was shown to be in the king's line and one who could legally receive the crown that David had and that God had said to David, someone would sit from David's line on that throne for all eternity. And then we saw that Jesus was proclaimed to Joseph, Mary's fiancé, by an angel as the one who would save his people from their sins. That was before he was born. And then Jesus was born as a baby to Mary, Mary who had never been with a man in a physical manner. Then in chapter 2 we see the Magi, and they came to worship this newborn king of the Jews. These kingmakers had traveled from the east over in Persia to worship the one that a star had led them to. In that same chapter, King Herod, who was king over Judea where Jesus was born, was troubled and tried to have him killed, but God had warned Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt to avoid Herod's wrath and to fulfill the prophecy that God would call his son out of Egypt. And when they returned from Egypt after Herod's death, Jesus and his family would settle in Nazareth, which was also to fulfill prophecies about the coming Messiah, who would be called a Nazarene. Then between chapters 2 and 3, we skipped forward almost 30 years. And here we met the herald, not the herald angel, but we met the herald, the king's herald, the one who would go before the king and prepare for his coming, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we met there early. And John's job was to come and call people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins so people would be ready for the king who was coming, which was Jesus. And as John was baptizing and great crowds were coming to him, Jesus came and presented himself to be baptized by John. And as they came out of the water, you might remember, if you haven't heard the the account, as John and Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens opened... The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. And God spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And immediately following this scene, chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and Jesus overcame then three temptations presented to Him that we see in Matthew which offered Him the kingdoms of the world. With the Word of God He overcame those temptations with the patience of a suffering servant. Then we saw him move his base of operations to Galilee, to a town called Capernaum, from where he went forth preaching like John had, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's the king of heaven announcing to those who would hear him that he had arrived and that he had brought the kingdom with him. And since he was there and the kingdom was with him in their midst, Those hearing Him were to change their minds, change their hearts, change their lives in response to the arrival of the King and His kingdom. 
And then we saw him call his first disciples, demanding that they forsake their normal life patterns, get out of the boat, drop your nets, and follow me. And he went about teaching, preaching, and healing. And then at the end of chapter 4, a couple weeks ago, we see Jesus teaching in the synagogues all through Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all who were brought to Him. And as He did these things, His fame spread into the regions all around, expanding into areas up far north into Syria, south down into Judea, uh, into Jerusalem, the surrounding areas, the Decapolis, it said. Jesus was all of a sudden famous. And as his fame spread, Jesus was focused on one thing. Remember what we said? It's what we read here at the beginning of chapter 5. He was focused on pouring his life into his disciples. He cared about the crowd. He ministered to the crowd. But he focused on pouring his life into his disciples, whom he would eventually entrust this message of the kingdom to. So as the crowd swelled, we saw at the beginning of chapter 5 that Jesus saw the crowds and then went up on the mountain right near the Sea of Galilee. It's actually more like a hill, but when Jesus climbs up on it, it's a mountain. The king makes it a mountain. So he goes to a little bit more inaccessible place, and crowds still followed him, but Jesus purposefully did what was most needful next. He sat down, which a rabbi would sit down to teach. So when he sat down, he was assuming a teaching posture. And when he did, his disciples, who would have been used to this by now, came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. And what follows in these three chapters is what he taught them. They had seen him work wonders. They had heard him call them personally. They had learned from him. They had lived with him. And now they would hear directly from the king's lips what would be expected of them, and what they would be molded into as His people. So, let's zoom through these chapters to get an overall, overarching view of what's going on, of what He said to them, what He taught them. And remember, this is to them. And by association, it's for us as well. We'll talk about that later. This wasn't just Jesus talking to those 12 guys sitting there. It was for us as well. Okay, He's not talking to the crowds, so the crowds hear Him. He's teaching His disciples. You will not hear anything in this sermon, in Jesus' sermon, about how to be saved. You will not see any steps for salvation because He's talking to saved people. You will see the kingdom as it should be manifested in the lives of those who have been called to Jesus by His irresistible grace. You will see in whole what had been seen in part by healings and deliverances. While the kingdom of heaven was breaking out all around them, Jesus is about to teach what it looks like in its fullness. And He starts with what we call the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3-12, through 12, which we read, speak of the blessedness of what it means to be kingdom citizens. And what's crazy is it's upside down and backwards from what the world and the religious thought of the day would have said. If you start to hear what it means to be blessed, you're going to think blessed are the rich. Blessed are the healthy. Blessed are the all these good things that 
that we hear proclaimed through these health and wealth and prosperity people. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And blessed are those who are reviled falsely. Now does that sound like blessing to you? Sounds like fun, right? Jesus says that for these people, this is blessedness. And that they are to rejoice and be glad in poverty and mourning and hunger and thirsting and in persecution and in meekness and in making peace in a world that does not know what peace is. Jesus says rejoice and be glad. So right out of the gate, Jesus is showing that repentance is foundational to this kingdom that He is proclaiming. You have to change your mind. You have to change your expectations. You have to change your heart if you want to know what true joy and fulfillment is in this kingdom. Jesus then says that His followers are the salt of the earth and the light of the world and He calls them to do and be what they are by their new super natures. Chapter 5 then transitions in verse 17 into Jesus' view and explanation of the law. And this is where things get really contentious. Because people are watching this guy and they know he's famous and they know that he's proclaiming some crazy stuff, but they're watching, especially the Jews, what's he going to say about the law of God? And what he says, in what would be a shocking statement to those who heard it, he says that he had not come to abolish the law of God, but rather to fulfill it. Now get that. Jesus is saying that He would fulfill, that He would bring to completion, that He would accomplish the law of God. He was going to keep that law and make it possible for those after Him to walk in what would be a kept law. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Old Testament, but there's a lot of stuff in that Old Testament that makes me go, I could never do that. And James would say later in the New Testament that if you're guilty of breaking one part of it, you're guilty of the whole thing. Paul would say the purpose of the law was to increase transgressions. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to do it. And he says, and you're going to walk in that fulfillment as well. He then expands on that thought by addressing the hot-button topics of... Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving your enemies. You think that's practical for our day and time? Anybody wrestle with lust? Anybody wrestle with anger? Anybody wrestle with loving your enemies? In this section, Jesus makes startling statements. Like you have heard it said, hate your enemies. But I say to you, Love your enemies. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that if a man looks upon a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said, do not kill, but I say to you that if you're angry with your brother, it's the same as murder. Jesus is turning up the volume on the law of God. These are thunderous proclamations. 
Jesus showing that the law had rigid demands, but this kingdom that He is preaching and proclaiming would emphasize the inner recesses of the heart of man, not just outward obedience. Which leads into chapter 6 where Jesus starts pointing out the danger of doing righteous deeds in order to be seen doing them by others. True reward is is from God, not the applause and the praise of men. Then Jesus teaches on what it means to pray in His kingdom. Here we see what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And then after prayer, Jesus addresses fasting, which is to be in secret as well, as prayer was, not outwardly done to be seen fasting by men. Then we see Jesus teaching that our rewards are to be stored up, not here on earth, but in heaven. Our rewards are not the wealth of worldly riches, but our rewards are what the Father gives us, and we are to store those up in heaven. And chapter 6 closes with Jesus tackling the giant of anxiety. Anybody wrestle with any anxiety? I could give you the numbers. But listen to these statements. We're going to read chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, because these words just bear reading. I mean, we just need to read this. We need to proclaim this. We need to listen to this. We need to hear this. Because this is so countercultural. But it's amazing. Therefore, I tell you, the king says, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek... First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Wow. There's gold in them dark hills, okay? But that's a couple months down the road, at least. So that finishes chapter 6 and we finish our overview today as we move into chapter 7. And here in chapter 7 we see probably the most quoted and most misunderstood snippet of the sermon. Judge not that you be not judged. We hear that, don't we? Everybody knows that one. Now from that Jesus then elaborates and says to get the log out of your eye so you can see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye. And then there's that whole pigs and dogs thing which follows that in the context, which is real. I've already got a title for that sermon. You ready? Specks and Logs, Pigs and Dogs. Okay? Yeah, hey, write that down. I don't know when we'll get there, but uh, yeah, that's already titled. And actually that whole context does fit together in an amazing way. That's good stuff. So... Uh, wait till we get there. Then Jesus tells us to seek, ask, and knock, and talks of God giving good gifts better than any earthly father ever could. In chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, elaborate the golden rule. 
and the narrow gate. And to close out this masterful sermon, Jesus tells His disciples to look out for false prophets who are wolves in sheep's clothing. He says the fruit is to be, what is, is to be what's inspected. And the fruit is what we will be judged by when Jesus finally judges the world. He says not all who say Jesus is their Lord will be admitted into heaven. Nor will those who have just done some stuff that looks spiritual. Look at chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Now I hope that makes you shudder. I hope that makes you go, huh. Because I see this scene on the final day of these people standing before the judge of all the earth, Jesus Christ, and they're saying, look at all this stuff that we did in your name. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Hell is your reward. That's sober. And only the king with full authority could say things like this. Jesus says this then in verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And that's how the sermon ends. No three-point application here. Just a dire warning. If you don't do these words that I've spoken today, your house is going to fall. And great will be the fall of it. And how do people respond to it? And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were wowed. They were astonished. Why? Because He didn't refer to the teachings of the rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so brought this up. Or the scribes who had written stuff and had interpretations of their own. No, he was speaking authoritative words from his own mouth, his teaching, explaining what the purpose of God and what the kingdom of God was all about. His words. They were astonished at his words because they had authority. He was teaching them as one who had authority. They knew that the authority that he had was as certain as the authority that Moses had when he had come down off the mountain. When there was thunder and lightning and fire and smoke. And the people said, Whoa, we don't want to hear God speak. Moses came down with his face shining. They're like, don't cover your face up, Moses. You've been in God's presence and you're shining. And we can't stand it. And here Jesus speaks and the people are like, that's authority. That's authority. 
Jesus here on this mountain was propounding the principles and maxims of the kingdom of heaven and His words were saturated with authority. His disciples knew it and even the crowds could see it. The question we have today is, do we see it? Will we see it? Will these words have authority in our lives? So that's just a brief overview. And that's not a fair treatment of this amazing message. But we do want to take it today and we want to look at its purpose and how it relates to us today. Why would we look at this sermon? Is it for us? Is it possible for us to live this out? Because there's a lot of talk in and out of the church about how this Sermon on the Mount should be viewed today. First, the simple answer is yes. We should look into what's in this sermon and how it applies to us today because it's in the Scriptures. There are those who say that Jesus was referring to a future kingdom that we have no part of today. Or that it was a kingdom that Jesus was offering to the Jews of His day who ended up refusing Him so they missed the kingdom and now the kingdom wouldn't be existence until the end of all things. But these views hold no water in light of the demands that Jesus places on all of His followers in His day and going forward into the future fulfillment of the kingdom which we're in the going forward part here. We're in the already but not yet of the kingdom of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his masterful work, Studies on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, There is nothing so dangerous as to say that the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with modern Christians. Indeed, I will put it like this, Jones says, It is something which is meant for all Christian people. It is a perfect picture of the life of the kingdom of God. Close quote. And to which I say a hearty amen. And with that, I point out that it is for those who know Jesus as their Lord. This sermon is for disciples of Jesus Christ. This sermon is for Christians. And as such, it was not for those who were not Jesus' disciples in that day. And as such, it's not for people today who are not Christians. You might hear some... We'll talk about that later, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It's not for people who are not disciples of Jesus. There on that mountain, Jesus spoke to His disciples in the hearing of the crowd which made up the groups of that day. Now, this is important. These groups that were standing there in that crowd show who this sermon was not for and who it was serving to point out the fallacies of. And I see five of these groups in that time period that Jesus spoke to. That the crowd, Jesus wasn't speaking to, but the crowds that heard was made up of five different kinds of people. First, there were the unbelievers, just the the pagans. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. Okay? These groups each believed certain things that this sermon exposed. And their fallacies still speak to us today too, because we see them. Let's look at these groups and how the sermon addresses their faulty beliefs. First, the unbelievers. The crowd was made up of Gentiles, we know. We saw them. They came from Syria, Decapolis, all around. These were people who didn't even believe in the God of the Jews. But they were flocking to Jesus to have Him heal and deliver them. They came to have their needs and wants met. And if Jesus said some neat things along the way, well, that's okay too. 
This sermon clearly says to these folks, this kingdom is all-consuming. You can't give lip service to it. It's not just for your benefit. You will either be consumed by it or you will miss it. This sermon, this kingdom is not a tack-on or add-on to your agenda for yourself. Quite the opposite. It is the epitome of what self-denial looks like. So the unbelievers were exposed by this sermon. Then there were the Pharisees. They were the meticulous law keepers. Theirs were the traditions and the add-ons to the law that made them look morally superior to those around them. But theirs was an external righteousness. They did their deeds to be seen as righteous by other people. And this sermon says plainly that the righteousness preached in this sermon went past exterior righteousness into the hidden man in our hearts. So the Pharisees were exposed. Then there were the Sadducees. They were barely religious. Okay? They didn't even believe in a physical resurrection. They picked and chose out of the Bible what was beneficial to them here. So these weren't unbelievers, even though they probably weren't saved. They said that they were Jewish followers, but they only followed for what benefited them. They wanted their joy and their success now. And this sermon says that the best rewards are in heaven in a future life. So they're exposed by this sermon. Then there were the Essenes. These folks were those who believed that true righteousness was found by removing themselves from the pollution of the world. They withdrew into communities out in the desert in places like Qumran. You hear the Dead Sea Scrolls? That was from Qumran. Okay, that's where these people withdrew to to have a holy congregation separate from the world so that they wouldn't have to be near things that might be considered sinful. Get away from the world to keep from sinning. That was their mindset. But this sermon of Jesus says to shine brightly in the world to be salt and light as we are appointed to be. So the Essenes are put off by this too. And finally there were the Zealots. These guys were revolutionaries. They vowed to kill any Jew who had sworn any allegiance to the Roman Empire. Now remember there's a guy in the disciples of Jesus called Simon the Zealot. In any other setting he would have vowed that he would have killed Matthew who had sworn allegiance to the Roman Empire by being a tax collector. And yet Jesus brings them together. But these zealots, they were political guys, right? They were going to try to bring God's kingdom through force by destroying their enemies. They were going to do it by undoing the Roman Empire, the evil empire, and establishing God's kingdom here on earth. They were going to do it by force. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the zealot's way is not Jesus' way either. And don't we deal with all of these issues today? The same issues. Unbelievers who come just to hope maybe get something good for my life. you got the Pharisees who are the rule keepers who would tell us why we should have 12 seats in a row, not 13. they got reasons. Well, my daddy never did it like this. That's the Pharisees. I need a tie, right? Not wearing fuzzy Crocs, that's not appropriate. That's the Pharisees, right? And they're, and they're still around today. We just don't call them that to their face. I'm just kidding. The Sadducees who are religious. I grew up a Christian. I was born in a Christian home. Tell me about heaven. Ah, God wants us to be happy now. 
Essenes, these people who just won't even venture out into the world. The world is evil, it's bad. We can't have anything to do with the world. Monks, right? And then the zealots, our social justice warriors, right? They're going to establish justice through the system. And this message exposes every one of them and says it's not sufficient. And they are every one of us. Jesus was calling His disciples to a life of true repentance, true righteousness, living and shining in their lives, in their homes, in their relationships, and not just with those who they like or love, but even with their enemies and their persecutors. And He says the same for us today. This message is just as pertinent and powerful for us today as it was nearly 2,000 years ago. And Jesus will not be a partner in your life based on your agenda. He has all authority and He tells you how to live. You don't tell Him what you want. You don't tell Him what you desire. You don't tell Him what you need Him to do. The king thunders from the mountain and says, You've heard it said, but I say. Jesus will not condone your efforts of external righteousness, deeds done for the applause of men. Jesus will not help you accomplish your dreams and goals in this life only. He will not applaud you withdrawing from the culture like it is the problem. And He will not be a part of your political agenda to usher in God's kingdom through legislation. Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' people will have to do things Jesus' way. There's no other options. And if we're going to go with Jesus and do things His way, ultimately we have to be like Jesus. And listen to me, that's the point. We see this most clearly in two verses from Matthew chapter 5. First, Matthew chapter 5 verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were the picture of righteousness to those of that time. They were impeccable in their keeping of the law and were externally clean as a whistle. But Jesus says in order to enter His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, you have to be more righteous than them. And people must have gasped when He said that. What? More righteous than a Pharisee? How's that even possible? I got a better one. Matthew chapter 5 verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. More righteous than a Pharisee? Well, goodness gracious. But perfect like the Father? Uh, Well, there's no way, right? This is not Jesus saying we have to achieve perfection on our own. Praise God. Now he says, you must be perfect. But it's him pointing to himself. Himself as our means of righteousness. You see, it's not about keeping more rules than the Pharisees. It's not about achieving the holiness of God by our own means. Jesus is spending this sermon saying, this is me and I am your only hope. Jesus is the embodiment of the Beatitudes. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who prayed for His persecutors. Jesus is our treasure in heaven. Jesus is the giver and the very point of this sermon. 
Jesus is pointing us to Him so that we can be not us. Jesus is pointing to Himself so you can be different. And He was surely different. And now He's calling His followers to be different from those around them. And that's another point of the message. Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom and the citizens of this kingdom are to be different. John Stott puts it this way, quote, The followers of Jesus are to be different. Different from both the nominal church and the secular world. Different from both the religious and the irreligious. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system. Ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all of which are totally at variance with those in the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under the divine rule. End of quote. Living this message makes us the counterculture that John Stott refers to in that quote. And that is as needed today as it was in Jesus' day. We have to be different. We have to live differently. We have to think and feel and love differently, which means we have to do what? We have to repent. We have to change our minds altogether. And this sermon points us to that exactly. You know what? It, you want to know what it means to repent? Look at the Sermon on the Mount. And you know why? Because Jesus points us to His Word as the source of authority. Because that Word flows from Him who is the one who has received all authority. His Word is designed to change the way we think so we can change the way we live. In obedience to Him who has all authority. So, we'll come to application then. Four points of application from what we've looked at this morning as we prepare to move into the specifics in the coming weeks and months. We have to keep these points in mind that we're looking at today as we move into the sermon bit by bit. This masterpiece is primarily concerned with four main things. First, true repentance. Second, true righteousness. Three, living counter-culturally. And point four, I'll reveal when we get there. It's not a mystery. True repentance, true righteousness, living counter-culturally. First, true repentance. Listen, this sermon pushes us to evaluate whether or not our lives are based on true repentance or just an effort to check boxes or try harder to do better. Listen to me. As far as application goes, your efforts, as sincere as they may be, are of no effect whatsoever if your thinking and your heart are not changed. You can try all you want. Bite your lip all you want. Push a little harder. Get up a little earlier. Stay up a little later. Check a few more boxes all you want. But if your thinking and your heart are not changed, you are not a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is about true repentance. The word for repentance in Greek is metanoia. And it means to change your mind. It literally means to take the old one out and to put a new one in. Literally, to have a new mind in place of the old one. And Jesus had begun His preaching with repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here, in these three glorious chapters, 
He elaborates on that imperative and shows that true repentance looks like blessing in poverty and mourning. It looks like a person who goes above and beyond what others expect of them. It looks like persecution being a blessing. It looks like turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. And not with fists clenched and teeth grinding. No, it's all done rejoicing and believing. Truly believing that these things are blessings and not curses. And listen, this is supernatural. There is no way we could possibly repent like this on our own. Change your mind and see persecution and suffering as blessings. You can't do it. Now you can look and and have this old woe is me attitude and I'm just a martyr. That's not true repentance. True repentance is hearing the world revile you because you claim the name of Christ and you rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. And you love the person who's defiling you. Not changing your head and your heart. And it's supernatural. You can't do this on your own. True biblical Sermon on the Mount repentance takes a miracle of supernatural new birth. Only those who have been born from above can exhibit this type of repentance. And that's one thing that Jesus wants to make clear in this sermon. And that's one thing I want to make clear to you this morning. There is a true repentance and there is a false repentance. And if it's not empowered by the Holy Spirit of God through the new birth, you will never truly repent. You'll never read this sermon and go, Oh yeah, it is a blessing to suffer. It is a blessing to be poor in spirit. It is a blessing to mourn. Because we read those words and we go, I don't think that's really a blessing. And if that's our thinking, we're missing the whole point. So we've got to change the way we think. We've got to change the way we feel. And only the Holy Spirit of God can do that in you and through you. You can't get enough right information to finally figure it out and put all the pieces together. So true repentance. Second, true righteousness. It's not just repentance, but it's also true righteousness. Like repentance, righteousness can, to some people, be based on external appearances. But Jesus attacks that tendency so clearly that He annihilates it and grinds it to powder. Unless your righteousness, your righteous deeds exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees who did their good deeds to be noticed by men, then you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So true righteousness, true right standing with God is not about how others see you, but it's rather about how God Himself sees you. Oh, there will definitely be a change in your outward life, like we mentioned in true repentance. But that's a sign of your true repentance, a sign of your true righteousness, not the basis of it. Please understand that. These deeds that you'll be doing do not make you righteous. You have been declared righteous by God Himself And that leads you to do different deeds. You don't do righteous deeds to earn righteous standing before God. We spent two and a half years in Romans hammering that and hammering that and hammering that. True righteousness is given as a gift from a gracious God. And true righteousness is never attained by deeds that we do. 
You may look righteous and be lost in your sins while delighting in the applause of men. The truly righteous person hears the applause of heaven. The truly righteous person hears the Father proclaim over them, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then lives in purposeful obedience to the heavenly command to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. And this message, this sermon, points that out time and time and time again. Stop doing righteous deeds to earn the applause of men, but hear the applause of heaven and respond by doing the righteous deeds that we saw Jesus doing in His day, that we know the Holy Spirit is moving us to, that is clearly revealed in the Word of God today, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That's true righteousness. And that's what this message is about as well. True repentance, true righteousness. Third point, living counterculturally. We have to be different from the culture. We have to be different from the latest trends and fads. We have to be different than a lukewarm church. And listen to what I'm about to say. If there's no difference, what we have is just enough religion to make us feel better about ourselves. And that leads us straight to hell. If we aren't living in friction with the way things are out there, if we aren't being persecuted for righteousness' sake, we do not know the life that this Sermon on the Mount is talking about. Now that does not mean that we're jerks and we're on Facebook all day fussing with people, telling them what's wrong with them. And we're right and everybody else is wrong. But it does mean that when the darkness is exposed by the true light, there will be pushback. And the world will attack based on the hatred it has for the one who truly exposed its fallenness. And that's Jesus. Blessed are you when people persecute you and speak vilely against you for my name's sake, Jesus said. They hate Him. They hated Him then, they hate Him now. People talk about a generic God, but you mention Jesus and there's going to be pushback. And there's blessing in that pushback. And we love the people who push back at us. And we pray for them. And we lay our lives down for them. Just like Jesus did. But it's not just about opposition and persecution. We have to have a difference in our lives that neither we nor others can deny. John Stott again puts it this way, quote, Jesus emphasized that His true followers, the citizens of God's kingdom, were to be entirely different from others. They were not to take their cue from the people around them, but from Him, and so proved to be genuine children of their heavenly Father. Stott says, to me, the key, of the, the key text of the Sermon on the Mount is chapter 6, verse 8. Do not be like them. And he says, it is immediately reminiscent of God's word to Israel in the olden days. You shall not do as they do. It's end of quote. And it's the same call to be different from what we saw in the Old Testament to what we see in the New Testament. And right through the Sermon on the Mount, this theme is elaborated. Their character, the disciples of Jesus' character, was to be completely distinct from what the world admired. Again, look at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And people might have been going, uh... 
They were to shine like lights in the prevailing darkness. Their righteousness was to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, both in ethical behavior and in religious devotion, while their love was to be greater and their ambition nobler than those of their pagan neighbors. Listen to me. Listen to me. This sermon clearly tells us today, if there's no difference, then there's no reality to our Christian life. True repentance, changing the way we think and feel. True righteousness, true in our standing with God and how we live it out. And that living it out is different than the world around us. It's different than the nominal Christians around us. It's different than the pagans around us. Which leads us to point four, which is Jesus. You can not do this on your own. I did not say you cannot do this. I said you can't do it on your own. I hear people who would say they're not believers or people who say they are believers who don't really read the Bible much. And what they say is this a lot of times. I try to live by the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. To which I say, good luck. How are you doing with that? I'd say you're batting zero. Let me make this as plain as I can make it. You cannot do this on your own. If we are going to exhibit true repentance and true righteousness and live counterculturally and be different, we need much more than we can give it. We need the power of the one who has already done it. And we will fail, even though we know we're not supposed to. So, here's where we get back to what we talked about when He was baptized. We need His life to stand in for ours. Listen to me. We have to see that we have been credited His perfect life. We have been credited His complete obedience. We need to be credited His perfect standing before the Father. Or you will in no wise see the kingdom. So Jesus spends these three amazing chapters ultimately giving us a picture of who He is, of what He is like, and how He will live in His time on earth. And while it is surely a perfect example, it's not only an example. It's a picture of who He is and who we are to become. Our justification is God giving us the righteousness of Christ as a gift. Our sanctification is us becoming more and more like Jesus in our everyday lives. And that is what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. We see what we have been given, and we see what we are becoming. And it is Jesus. In one word, we have been given and we are becoming Jesus. Like Jesus in every aspect, in the way that we think, in the way that we feel, in the way that we act, in the way that we love people and serve people, in the way that we see our standing before God. And I think of John weeping because no one was found worthy. And the angel said, Don't weep. Don't weep. And I look at my life and I think, oh, I'm not worthy. I can't do this. I fail and I fall and I flop. And I don't see me being worthy. Weep no more. 
Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures and all of God's people said, Amen! Because this is all about Jesus. This is all about His authority and His ability to do what you cannot do in and of yourselves. And He has chosen to take up a yoke and invite you to come beside Him and walk with Him and let Him carry the load. And He tells us in these three chapters what it looks like when we are yoked up with Him who is worthy. When we're yoked up with the One who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And He carries the load. And we walk with Him and we say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what this message is all about. And it's for you. It's for me. It's for us. Let's pray. I would have despaired if I had not known that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God, you have given us great and precious promises that far exceed our expectations and our desires. And you have given us a mandate through this Sermon on the Mount of what our lives are to look like. And God, we cast ourselves wholly upon you to fulfill this message in our lives that we might see the blessings in persecution, the blessings in poverty, that we might be salt and light, that we might seek you and your kingdom first, that we might be those who build on the foundation, a sure and steady foundation, the rock which is Christ Jesus. so that you receive glory and honor and blessing and dominion in our lives. God, I pray that you would grant us true repentance, true righteousness, that you would empower us to live differently and that we would see that the fulfillment of all this is Jesus Christ and Him glorified in and through our lives. You are worthy. You are worthy. Thank you for choosing us and loving us and adopting us based on no merit of our own, but based completely on your grace. We trust you to do what we can't in and through us. And we'll give you praise for it. As we launch into this set of messages on this great sermon, God, grant us to hear and to do for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive a benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling...
and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can.